Our scripture reading this morning comes from Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 19. Hear God's word to us. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. The word of the Lord came to me a second time, saying, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come and everyone shall sat set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem, against its walls all around, and against all the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. But you, dress yourself for work, arise, and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning again. Um, I want to begin with a question. As we've heard this passage just read for us this morning, what do you see? And I'm going to show you a couple pictures. I don't know how, you know, the sun is just brilliant this morning after that storm last night. Um, I'm going to ask you a series or show you a series of pictures, and I want you to think about what you see. So first here, I want you to think, do you see the front of a man's face or the side of a man's face? So kind of by a show of hands, who saw the front of a man's face first? Okay, who saw the side of a man's face first? Okay, okay, good. Next, how about this one? Uh, when you look at this couple, who's holding the magazine? The man or the woman? This one takes a little more focus. Um, but I can promise you as you look closely, it's actually the man who's holding the magazine. Some of you think I'm an idiot, but it's up there, trust me. One more. Um, do you notice anything weird about this picture? Now what about this? Did anybody get it? Did it look like, did, I mean, maybe you're somewhere like, oh, I caught it right away. Well, it fooled me, so you're smarter than I am, so that should set us up well for this morning. So what do you see? What do you see? This question's at the heart of life. What do you see? When you go about your day, when you look at the world around you, what do you see? And it reminds me of what Abraham Herschel, the brilliant Jewish biblical scholar, once said, that one of the greatest dangers for you and I is that we see what we know rather than knowing what we see. One of the greatest dangers for you and I is that we see what we already know rather than really know what we see. We see what we've seen time and time again, maybe what we've been trained or cultured to see rather than actually knowing what's right in front of us. And there are a lot of things that impact our perception, aren't there? Your personality, you notice certain things, your birth order, your cultural surroundings, your assumptions about religion, what you value, what you desire, what you want. So many things impact 
how you see what's right in front of you. Which is why you can have two different people look at the same image and see two different things. And so I want to think even just more broadly about kind of our lives over the past month. What do you see when you've heard the news stories and you've seen the images of Hurricane Harvey? What do you see when you've seen the images and heard the news stories about the mass shooting in Las Vegas? What do you see when you see the beauty of a newborn sitting there resting for the first time outside of his mother's womb? This is my son, by the way. Right? Mm. What do you see? What do you see when you see the brilliant sunrise over the trees in the Black Hills of South Dakota? What do you see? Like in the midst of beauty and, 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 and great grandeur, do you see design or do you see random chance? In the midst of disaster and atrocities, do you see chaos and hopelessness? Or even in the face of evil, are you able to see a glimmer of hope? What do you see? And is there more than what you're actually perceiving? Is there so much more going on right in front of you? that you're completely missing. Well, last week we began a series in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called to be a prophet, first to speak God's word to Israel and then to the rest of the world, to all of these nations and kingdoms. And that kind of call is too big for Jeremiah to fulfill on his own. And what we saw last week is that although we may not be called to be prophets, when God calls us to himself, he calls us to a task way too big for ourselves alone. So this week, when God approaches Jeremiah, he knows that calling Jeremiah to this outlandish role isn't enough. Just speaking to Jeremiah. What Jeremiah needs is he needs to see something. Jeremiah needs a vision of life. And so do you, and so do I, where God has called us to be. So this morning, we're going to hear this question posed to the prophet Jeremiah, what do you see? And we're going to hear it posed to us as well. And what we'll get to see, not only is what Jeremiah saw, but how Jeremiah now sees going forward as a person of faith, as someone walking with God. And we'll see the basic structure of our text is two particular visions that God gives Jeremiah and a promise. Okay, so let's take a look at that together. If you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 1, beginning here in verse 11. We see that Jeremiah, he needed to see something, and so God gives Jeremiah a vision. And here we read, once again, Jeremiah 1, verse 11. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord so you notice that word Lord in all caps, that's God's personal name, that's not just his title, Yahweh. So the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Now who here doesn't love almonds, right? Like I love almonds, they're one of my favorite snacks for so many nutritional reasons and just pure aesthetics, brilliant. But what do they have to do with what's going on here? And when we come to this passage and we see this conversation between Jeremiah and God, it's a reminder that we come to a book that, yes, was written, inspired by the Holy Spirit with various authors, and it was written for us. But first and foremost, Scripture was not written to us. You see, Jeremiah, this book, was written over 2,500 years ago in Hebrew to the Hebrew people 
in ancient Hebrew culture with all of these assumptions. So what they would have naturally understood when they're hearing this, when Baruch, which who is actually the scribe collating a lot of what Jeremiah has spoken and written, he's bringing all these things together. They would have naturally understood a lot of the nuance in these passages. We have to do thoughtful study of God's word to unearth that, okay? So here's what we're checking out with these ancient snacks. First, in Israel, the almond tree was the first tree to bud in spring. And it's beautiful. It's the first sign that this cold and dark winter is coming to a close. So it's the end of one chapter, the beginning of a new chapter. It's a sign of something to come. But alongside of the beautiful imagery, we see that God is actually playing some word games here when he's talking to Jeremiah. You see, In the original Hebrew, if you look, actually, if you are using one of our community Bibles that we have on the back table, you'll see a footnote. And in the original Hebrew, it says down in this little footnote, the Hebrew word for almond sounds like the Hebrew word for watching. Okay, so here's how it plays out in this little dialogue between God and Jeremiah. God asked Jeremiah, what do you see, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah says, I see an almond, shached branch, okay? That was good guttural, wasn't it? God then says, good job, Jeremiah, and I am watching shohed over my word to make it happen. Almond, watching, shohed, shohed. Okay, so you see the almond. And in Hebrew, those words are so similar that when he sees the almond branch, he remembers now that God is watching over his word to bring it about. So why is this important? If you look back in verse 10, we talked about this last week. God spoke boldly over Jeremiah, saying that the message that God was going to give Jeremiah to now proclaim to God's people and to the nations is one of exile, it's one of destruction, it's one of alienation. And then simultaneously, this weird hope that there's going to be planting and this building up of a people in a weird way, in a way that just blew people's categories. So hang with me here, hang with me. And it's going to be very unpopular, almost inconceivable to the vast majority of the people who hear the message that God has entrusted to Jeremiah. But when the doubts come, Jeremiah, when nobody seems to be listening to you, I want you to remember this moment. Remember what you see. What do you see? I see the blooming of an almond tree. Shached good. When you see that, also see me, Shochet, watching over my word to ensure it will come to fruition. I will not abandon you, Jeremiah. When you doubt, look to the almond tree. It may have been a hard winter. Your bones may be chilling to the core, but spring will come. My will will be done, and I will bring it about. Look to the almond tree. And as we see this, I want to pause here And I know so many things are going on in our lives. When you hear that, what do you see? What do you see when you doubt? And I want to be very clear here. Not if you'll doubt, but when you doubt. You're not a lesser Christian, a lesser follower of Jesus if you doubt. Because everyone wrestles with doubt. But the question is, when those come... When your confidence may be in Jesus or even wrestling with some of the questions of Jesus comes, when God's promises feel far-fetched, what do you do when this life feels too big for you? Where do you go looking? I know for me and also some of the conversations we've had together at different points, I know for many of us, one of the things we do is we just put our head down and we work. 
hoping that some of those doubts would just fade away into the background if we just keep pressing, just keep pressing. For others of us, one of the best ways to kind of just not deal with our doubts and to put our head down is to engage in entertainment, to binge watch another Netflix show, which I love to do, right? Suddenly it's like just one more, sure. Suddenly it's 1 a.m. Um, and you're like, where did the night go? And then the morning comes and you're like, where did the morning come from? Often we try to avoid our doubts. We run from them. We close our eyes and somehow expect blind faith to get us through. But here's the problem with that, okay? And this is what even Jeremiah, God is confronting Jeremiah with this. Faith isn't blind faith. It's not, faith isn't something that we look to when we can't see. Faith is a way of seeing the world the way that it actually is. When everybody else is seeing what you see, but they don't see it, suddenly God is opening Jeremiah's eyes and he's saying, when everybody else sees an almond branch, I want you to see that I'm going to carry out my promises. It's a way of seeing the world that's totally different. And interestingly enough, what Jeremiah needs most in his life to combat his doubts isn't some grand vision of the future either, is it? Not yet. What Jeremiah needs most is a vision of God working in the world when it seems like nothing's moving forward. He needs the eyes of faith to see God bringing about his will, even though all the markers in his life perceive or just seem as if nothing is going according to what God has said. And over the 40 years, Jeremiah proclaimed God's message. Forty different springs come. Every year, 40 times he sees the almond buds come out and he remembers what God said right there at the beginning in his calling. Look at the almond branch. Shoched, remember Shoched. I'm watching over my word. It's been 40 years, Jeremiah, but I'm going to do it. What about you? What do you see when you doubt? Do you see a faithful God in the small things? Do you see a faithful God in the small things? You know, I think the most profound part of the vision that God gives Jeremiah here is just how simple and ordinary it is. Like with Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when God is engaging the prophets, it's Yahweh on his throne, you know, surrounded by the cherubim. It's like grand, it's glorious, it's inspiring. But then Jeremiah is like, well, look at the almond branch. Like, this is what I got. You know, like when I think about, if I were to compare, I'd be like, man, I want what Isaiah had. But God's like, no, this is enough for you. In other situations with the prophets, he shows himself to be a grand general with an army bringing about his justice in the world. But here we have an almond branch. Something everybody actually sees. And yet he sees it differently through the eyes of faith when God speaks to him and engages him. See these almond branches. Don't just see what you know, but know what you see. I'm watching over you and my word to bring it about. What do you see? Do you see a faithful God even in the small things? What are those simple, small reminders of God's faithfulness in and around your life that you can look to? I know for me, there's a passage in the New Testament that talks about the wind. And so often when I'm out walking my dog, Lola, one of my favorite things to do is to watch the trees. I love watching the trees be 
rocked back and forth because what it reminds me is that even though I can't see the wind, things are happening. And it reminds me that even though I can't see God working at times, I know he is because I see his fingerprints all over the things that he's doing around me. I look to the wind often as just a constant reminder that God is working. Even though I can't see him, his impact is felt all around. What about you? What are, are there those simple moments, those almond branches in your life that can be a reminder of God working in and around you? What do you see when you doubt? Do you see a faithful God in the small things? But doubt wasn't uh, Jeremiah's only problem, and it surely isn't ours, um, but it's definitely a real one. So let's look to the second vision that God gives Jeremiah, and it begins in verse 13, and it's just as ordinary as the first. You know, Jeremiah walks probably into a camp scene and he sees this pot on an open fire and it's bubbling and it's slightly teetering, look like, looking like it's about to fall over and it's angled towards the north. And then God says in verse 14, out of the north disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, and they shall come and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah. And I'll declare my judgments against them. Why? This is important. For all their evil in forsaking me. They've made offerings to other gods and worship the works of their own hands. God's telling Jeremiah here that judgment's going to pour out on God's people like boiling water. And then at verse 17, here's the fun part. He says, but you dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them lest I dismay you before them. Who here likes giving bad news? Anyone? I didn't think so. Like there's something sadistic about the boss who enjoys firing someone or the manager who loves giving a poor performance review or the pastor or prophet who loves judgment. It's a difficult calling, which is why God calls Jeremiah to this. And the only way that I can stomach through it and the only way we can truly understand who God is and how and why he does this is understanding that judgment is really an expression of God's mercy. You're like, okay, Gabe, prove it. Here's how, okay? This is really important. When we ignore God in our lives, when we act in destructive ways towards one another or to ourselves or toward God, God then brings the consequences of our rebellious and unjust actions to bear on our lives in order to wake us up. As C.S. Lewis has so wisely said, God whispers to us in our pleasures but he shouts in the midst of our pain. And God here is like a father who sees his people drowning in their own injustice, drowning in their own inane, distracted lives. And he's shouting and he sees them almost in a coma-like existence. And he's shaking and he's saying, please wake up, wake up. I'm begging you, wake up. And this form of discipline is a last form of resort. You see, in the time of Jeremiah, generation after generation of God's people, they had rejected and abandoned God, and they had abused each other in these atrocious ways, especially the most vulnerable in their midst. Some of the things they did to infants and some of the things they did to the widows and the outcasts in their midst are absolutely unspeakable. It was a culture of death. 
And so as a last resort, God is bringing his justice to bear in these awful, awful times in order to wake up his people once again. I love the way Eugene Peterson brilliantly summarizes in his book, Running with the Horses. He says, the war would interrupt their inane and distracted, their soiled and silly lives and force them to attend to what is essential and eternal. Life and death, God and humanity, faith and faithfulness, covenant and obedience. And God tells Jeremiah, don't hold back, okay? Don't hold back. Don't be afraid of what they'll say or what they're going to try to do to you. There are going to be moments when they're going to circle around you and try to kill you. Don't hold back. Say what I've told you to say. They need to know that I'm bigger than what's coming. They need to know that actually I am over what is coming and it's not because of any other God out there that's proclaiming that they are over what is about to come, but I am the sovereign God over it all. What do you see? I see a boiling pot about to tip over. That's right, Jeremiah. When evil pours out on my people, I'm going to use it for good. I've got this. And when you think about our lives, every single one of us knows the sting of pain. I mean, it's terrifying to think about, but there's evil in the world. There's evil in each one of us that is warring to take control. But through it all, God is telling us, even in this moment, that he's bigger. Yes, it will come, but he isn't caught off guard. He isn't and hasn't lost control Which then raises the question, what about you? What do you see? Once again, let's circle back around here. What do you see when you're afraid? When you see and feel like the the pot is tipping and about to pour over? Because there's a lot to be afraid of these days, isn't there? I feel like the older I get, I'm starting to sound old, but the older I get, the more afraid I become or the more tempted I am to be afraid. I think about the reality for my kids. I think about the reality of just my own life and marriage. I think of this church and knowing many of you and many of the challenges that you wrestle with. When evil rears its ugly face, when failure looms large, when pain breaks in, where do you look? Do you look to politics? Do you look to kind of getting that nest egg, that financial security we talk about, ultimately being your ultimate security? Maybe, maybe you withdraw in fear because isolation is where you feel safe. Maybe in anger you've been staring at the pot for so long and watching it boil over that you're attacking the people around you. Or do you see a powerful God bigger than evil? Even in the midst of it when it comes. Do you see the one who's over the boiling pot? You see, God is saying, Jeremiah, yes, I'm bringing my judgment. And yes, I will use an evil army to wake up my evil people. But evil isn't running things. I am. Over it all. And that's not because God is the author of evil, let's be very clear, or the cause of evil. Want to be clear about that? But he's bigger than evil, bigger than pain and suffering, and he can turn beauty from ashes. He can make the most broken of situations in our lives and transform them into this beautiful work of art. And I was thinking of a good illustration for this, and one kind of came to the surface in one of J.R.R. Tolkien's lesser-known works, Um, and he describes it this way. You know, he imagines that all of creation is kind of like an orchestra, and God is the grand conductor 
over it all. And at the dawn of creation, all of creation worked together to make this beautiful harmony and this music just rich with all the various tones that would stir the hearts of all who were participating. I mean, the music, ah, to be carried away with the wonder, is marvelous. But then something happens. One of the members of the orchestra, he begins to play his own tune. He wants to take over the symphony. And so he begins to create these fortes when they're meant to be silent. He's trying to speed along the symphony when there's meant to be this slower movement and smoothness. And in his evil frustration, he gets louder, more vicious, more demanding in his flow. But every time this rebellious member tries to sabotage the symphony, the brilliant conductor guides the rest of the orchestra to take even this rebellious flow to make a brilliant work of art with great staccatos at the moment and these great moments of rest and sounding, resounding movements that make it one of the best symphonies this world has ever seen. Yes, God is not the author or the cause of evil, but in his sovereignty can even take the most atrocious of situations to bring them in the end to one of the greatest works of art. This is how big our God is. So yeah, evil's real. It's awful, but God is still bigger. And he doesn't want Israel to forget that. He doesn't want Jeremiah to forget that in the midst of pain and judgment and discipline that's coming on his people. And nothing can stop God from taking the worst in your life and mine and turning it into a masterpiece in the end. So what do you see when you're afraid? Do you see a powerful God bigger than evil? And there's something really important here. When we come to really see as God sees, this is the language of faith. Not just thinking what God thinks and loving what God loves, but actually learning to see as God sees the world. When we begin to live with eyes of faith, when doubts come and we see actually a faithful God in the small things, and when fears come and we actually see a God who's bigger than all the evil that surrounds us, God makes this promise. Look with me here at Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 17 again. But you, dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Don't be dismayed by them. Don't be afraid of them, lest I dismay you before them. And behold, I, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls. Against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land, they will fight against you. But they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord to deliver you. Look, Jeremiah, I know the task I've given you is much bigger than your life. But at the heart of both visions I've given you, I want you to remember this. At the heart of both of these is, I am with you. I am with you. I'm not just going to bring about my words to fruition up from my throne in heaven. I'm not just navigating and bigger than evil out in the distance. I'm not out there doing all this. I'm right here with you. I'm walking with you through all of this by your side, heart and soul. God agrees with Robert Frost that the best way out is often through. And he's standing right there with you. And God promises Jeremiah, and this is crucial, if you stand with me, I will deliver you. 
don't hold back, Jeremiah. Or, you know, I, you know if you're not going to stand with me here, then I, can, I won't promise to stand with you. But if you stand with me, I will deliver you. In contrast to Judah, whose gates and walls will come crumbling down when Jerusalem will come to ruin, Jeremiah will be a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall. And when people come after you for speaking my word, Jeremiah, even though you see yourself as only a youngster, remember he talked about that at the beginning, but I am but a youth. He felt inadequate. They'll never take you down, Jeremiah, because it isn't ultimately about your adequacy, it's about mine. You were never meant to be adequate by yourself. See, I am with you, and if you stand with me, I will deliver you. I mean, isn't that powerful? What about you? What do you see when you feel inadequate in life? Because we all do. We all come to those moments where you feel insecure, when you feel under attack, when you feel overwhelmed, or when you feel stuck. Remember, God doesn't call any single one of us to an easy life. That's not the point. Instead, when God calls us to himself, he calls us to a life too big for us. So when you feel inadequate, when you feel incompetent, overwhelmed with where you are in life, what do you see? And because, listen, the same promise God made to Jeremiah here, this isn't like I'm just plucking this out of this passage and saying, well, that was a promise to Jeremiah, but what about us here this day and age? Actually, Jesus makes the same promise to his church. In Matthew chapter 16, talking about the church, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the same language of prevailing that we see here in Jeremiah. Jesus has spoken over his church, over you and I. He's with his church to build his church, and all the forces of hell and evil can't stand in the way of what God is doing. He's much bigger than that. And if we stand with him and his son, Jesus, he will deliver us. So when you feel inadequate, do you see a God who's with you to deliver? Is that maybe one of your first responses? When you think and you hold on to God's character rather than shaken by the surrounding circumstances? Do you see a God who has you right where he wants you? That he hasn't forgotten you? That this doesn't surprise him? That he's called you to a task, a life that is much bigger than you. And when we read that God promises to deliver, this is really important. I know some of you are thinking, but Gabe, you don't know my life. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know some of the situations and pain that I'm wrestling with. You don't know how I've been burned. I want want to be very clear as to what this promise of deliverance means. What this promise isn't, isn't God saying that he will take us out of that difficulty every time. That's not what God's promising here. Instead, more often than not, God will bring deliverance by giving us strength, by giving us perseverance in the midst of untold difficulty, pain, and hardship. The best way out is always through. Deliverance does not mean escape. Often in God's language, deliverance means I'm with you, And I'll make you strong enough to walk right through the fire. And isn't that exactly what God did with Jeremiah? For 40 years, Jeremiah would speak God's word. For 40 
years Jeremiah would suffer. Do you know the nickname for Jeremiah who's promised to be this fortified wall, this, you know, these bronze walls and this strong city? He's often called the weeping prophet. Wait, wait, but, but God, you said you're going to deliver him. You, you said you're going to be with him. Exactly, because deliverance does not equate escape. Sometimes it does, but a majority of the times it doesn't. Don't believe, and this is so important, don't believe the lie that if suffering is in your life, somehow God has abandoned you. That somehow if you're struggling with life, then you have sinned major. That's not necessarily the case. It may be, and confession may need to be a component of that conversation. But more often than not, when you're engaging with suffering and you're seeking to follow Jesus, that's normal. And when he says, I'm with you, it may feel like he's distant, but he's empowering you in that moment to walk through the fire, not to run away. We see that with Jeremiah. That's why he needs to see the almond buds year after year. That's why he needs to know that God is bigger than the pot that's about to pour all over God's people. And never once did God abandon Jeremiah. Never once did God let Jeremiah fall. And this is our hope today. I'm reminded as I was reading this of the words of the Apostle Paul who also understood this to its core when he writes in 2 Corinthians but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. When we're called to God, when we're called to his son, Jesus, we've been called to a life way too big for us. And now we actually boast in our weaknesses, in our inadequacies. Because in those moments, God's strength is on display. In those moments, we feel his presence, have the capacity to feel his presence in ways that we couldn't have imagined because he's strengthening us in the midst of the pain. He's with you. And if you stand with him, he will deliver you but not by means of escape. And we, standing in this point in time in history, can be all more confident of this because we've been given an even greater vision than almond branches. Rather than looking to the almond tree, we can look to the old rugged cross where God sent his son Jesus to come, where the word of God became flesh and he actually dwelt among us and when the rest of the world considered him weak, when they thought they saw what they knew, they did not know what they really saw, which was God in the flesh coming to a broken world and then taking this boiling pot of judgment upon himself on the cross, his death for our life. So what do you see? My hope in the midst of all of this is that above all else, you would see Jesus and look full and his wonderful face, so that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May it be true. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word that you have spoken. 
Thank you that you have not left us abandoned, that suffering does not mean your absence, and that you are speaking throughout creation, confirming in your word, and present in the midst of pain because you are bigger than it all. God, may you give us the eyes to see as you gave Jeremiah the eyes to see. And may we learn to know what we see in your word, guided by your spirit and powered by your strength always towards the end of your glory. God, we love you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.